You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 324A by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Fourth Dimension, translated by Catherine Krieger. This is a section or lecture 11. It's a compilation of questions and answers from the, concerning the fourth dimension. Questions and Answers, Dornach, March 31, 1920. Question. Ordinary mathematics encompasses the forms, surfaces, and lines of force of solids, liquids, and gases. How would you imagine a mathematics of the domains of warmth, chemistry, and life? Steiner's answer. First of all, the field of mathematics as such would need to be appropriately expanded if we want to describe higher realms in a way that is analogous, but no more than analogous, to mathematics. As you may know, the need to expand mathematics became evident already in the 19th century. Let me just mention a point I have discussed on other occasions, including yesterday, I believe. In the late 19th century, it became apparent that a non-Euclidean geometry was needed to supplement Euclidean geometry and to make it possible to carry out calculations involving higher dimensions. Mathematicians of that time were suggesting that mathematics needed to be expanded, In contrast, as long as we are considering ordinary, ponderable matter, there is no appropriate use for dimensions other than the three ordinary Euclidean dimensions. Mathematicians today, however, are so disinclined to explore appropriate views of the domains of warmth, chemical effects, and the elements of life that extending mathematical thinking into these areas is really very problematic. The views mathematicians propound today certainly do not create a counterbalance to the professed inability of physics to grasp the essential nature of matter. And to be consistent, physicists would have to admit that physics does not deal with the essential nature of light, but only with what Goethe calls the image of light. Of course, sensible physicists will refuse to delve into the essential nature of things in the pursuit of their profession. Admittedly, the result is an unfortunate state of affairs. Physicists refuse to deal with the essential nature of things on any level, and those who concoct philosophies from the conventional material views of physics not only refuse to inquire into the essential nature of things, but even claim that it is impossible to do so. As a result, our view of the earth today is very one-sided, because, in fact, physics is never simply a matter of geology, but deals with the sum total of what such a specialized field can yield for general knowledge. Thus we face the adverse consequences of the mechanistic, non-mathematical worldview that physics has developed over time. What Goethe meant when he said that we should not talk about the being or nature of light, but rather should attempt to become familiar with the facts about it, 
with its deeds and sufferings, which yield a complete description of the nature of light, is by no means the same as refusing on principle to consider the question of the nature of light. Goethe's statement simply points out that true phenomenology, structured in the way we discussed here yesterday, ultimately does provide an image of the being in question. To the extent that physics is or intends to be real phenomenology, it does provide, at least with respect to mechanics, an image of the essential nature of phenomena. It can be said, therefore, that when we are not dealing with merely mechanical aspects of the phenomena of physics, that is, when we are dealing with fields other than mechanics, a mechanistic view hinders our ability to recognize the essential nature of things. To this extent, then, we do need to emphasize the radical difference between Goethe's intended phenomenology, which can be cultivated in Goetheanism, and any system whose principles rule out the possibility of approaching the true nature of things. This has nothing to do with the advantages of mechanistic methods for our urge to control nature. It is quite understandable that the field of technology and mechanics which has produced the greatest triumphs of the last few centuries and its mechanistic basis for understanding nature should satisfy our urge to control nature to a certain extent. But to what extent has this drive to understand and control nature fallen behind in other fields because they refused to press on toward the type of knowledge to which technology aspired? The difference between technology or mechanics and the fields of study beginning with physics and continuing through chemistry to biology is not that these higher fields deal only with qualitative properties or the like. The difference is simply that mechanics and mechanistic physiology are very elementary and easy-to-grasp aspects and have therefore managed to satisfy our desire for control, at least to a certain extent. At this point, however, the question arises, how do we satisfy our urge to control when we move on to higher, less mechanistic fields? In the future, we will have to count on being at least somewhat able to dominate nature in ways that go beyond mere technology. Even in the technological field, we can very easily experience failures to understand and control nature. If someone builds a bridge without adequate knowledge of the laws of mechanics that apply to railways, the bridge eventually will collapse, carrying the train with it. We react immediately to inadequate control due to faulty information. The proof is not always so easy, however, when control is based on more complicated domains that are derived not from mechanics, but from the process of developing a phenomenology. It is fairly safe to say that a bridge that collapses when the third train crosses it must have been built by someone inadequately motivated to understand the mechanics involved. In the case of a physician whose patient dies, it is not so easy to confirm a similar connection between the practitioner's desire to understand and his or her control over nature. It is easier for us to say that an engineer designed a faulty bridge 
than that a doctor cured the disease but killed the patient. In short, we should be somewhat less hasty to emphasize the importance of our urge to control nature simply because our mechanistic view of nature has proved capable of satisfying this urge only in the domain of mechanistic technology. Other ways of looking at nature will be able to very differently satisfy our urge to control. Let me point again to something that I believe I mentioned yesterday from a different perspective. We can never bridge the gap between the mechanistic view of the world and the human being except by applying a true phenomenological approach. Goethe's color theory not only presents the physical and physiological phenomena of color, but also makes the whole subject humanly relevant by exploring the sensory and moral effects of color. In our spiritual scientific work, we can move from the effects of colors pointed out by Goethe to the broader subject of understanding the entire human being, and then to the still broader subject of understanding all of nature. In some ways, it may be beneficial to draw people's attention repeatedly to the fact that a large part of the decadence we experience today in Western culture is related to satisfying our urge to control only from the mechanistic perspective. In this regard, we have done very well. We not only have developed railways, telegraphs, and telephones, and even wireless and multiple telegraphy, but we also have paved over and destroyed large parts of this continent. Thoroughly satisfying our urge to control has led to destruction. Following the straight line of development that began with our purely technological urge to control has led to destruction. This destructive aspect will be eliminated completely when we replace our pathologically expanded mechanistic view of the phenomena of physics with a view that that does not eradicate the specifics of physical phenomena simply by blanketing them in mechanistic ideas. We will move away from the mechanistic view, which admittedly has produced very good physiological explanations, to the specifics of the phenomena of physics. Our new view, which cannot be discussed down to its last consequences in one hour, also will lead to an expansion of mathematics that is based on reality. We must realize that in the past 30 to 50 years, confused mechanistic ideas have made possible all kinds of opinions about the so-called ether. After much effort, the physicist Planck, whom I mentioned earlier in a different context, arrived at this formulation. If we want to speak about the ether in physics at all, we cannot attribute any material properties to it. We must not imagine it in material terms. Planck forced physics to refrain from attributing material properties to the ether. The errors inherent in ideas and concepts about the ether are not due to having done too little mathematics or anything of that sort. They arose because proponents of the ether hypothesis were completely consumed by the trend that attempted to expand mathematics to cover the specifics of physics. Their mathematics was faulty because they behaved as if they were dealing with ponderable matter when they inserted numbers into formulas 
in which ether effects played a role. As soon as we realize that when we enter the domain of the ether, we can no longer insert ordinary numbers into mathematical formulas, we also will feel the need to look for a true extension of mathematics itself. There are only two points that need to be made in this regard. The physicist Planck says that if we want to talk about the ether in physics, we must at least refrain from attributing material properties to it. And Einstein's theory of relativity, or any other theory of relativity for that matter, forces us to eliminate the ether completely. In reality, we need not eliminate it. I can give only a brief indication here, but the main point is simply that when we shift to the ether, we must insert negative numbers into the formulas of physics, that is, mathematical formulas that are applied to phenomena in physics. These numbers must be negative, because when we move from positive matter through zero to the other side, as when we move from positive to negative numbers in formal physics, what we encounter in the ether is neither nothing, as Einstein believes, nor a pure negative, as Planck says, but something that we must imagine as possessing properties that are the opposites of the properties of matter, just as negative numbers are the opposite of positive numbers. Although we may debate what negative numbers are, the purely mathematical extension of the number line into negative numbers becomes significant for reality, even before we clearly understand the character of negative numbers. Of course, I am well aware of the significant mathematical debate in the 19th century between those who saw qualitative aspects in plus and minus signs and those who saw the minus sign only as a subtrahend lacking a negative minuend. This debate is not especially important, but it is important to note that when physics shifts from ponderable effects to etheric effects, it is forced to take the same route that we take in formal mathematics when we move from positive to negative numbers. We should check the results of the formulas when we decide to handle the numbers in this way. Much good work has been done in formal mathematics to justify the concept of formal imaginary numbers. In physics, too, we are obliged at a certain point to substitute imaginary numbers for positive and negative numbers. At this point, we begin to interact with numbers relevant to nature. I know that I have sketched all this very briefly and summed it up in only a few words, but I must make you aware of the possibilities. As we move from ponderable matter to the forces of life, we must insert negative numbers into our formulas to signify the inverse of the quantitative aspect of matter. And as soon as we transcend life, we must shift from negative numbers to imaginary numbers, which are not mere formal numbers, but numbers with properties derived not from positive or negative matter, but from the substantial aspect that is related, qualitatively and intrinsically, to both the etheric aspect, or negative matter, and the ponderable aspect, or positive matter, in the same way that the imaginary number line relates to the real number line of positive and negative numbers. 
Thus there is indeed a connection between formal mathematics and certain domains of reality. It would be highly regrettable if attempts to make our ideas approximate reality or to immerse our ideas in reality were to fail because of the trivial notion that the offerings of truly rational rather than merely mechanistic physics and physiology would be less effective in satisfying the human urge to control nature. In fact, they would be more effective than applying the mechanistic worldview to the technology that we have glorified to such an extent. This mechanistic technology has certainly produced great results for humanity's cultural development. But people who constantly talk about the glorious progress of the natural sciences as a result of the conventional calculations of physics should keep in mind that other areas may have suffered as a result of turning our attention totally to the technological domain. To escape from the decadence brought on by our merely technical understanding and control of nature, we would do well to turn to a physiology and physics that, unlike our mechanical and mechanistic knowledge, cannot refuse to acknowledge the essential nature of things. You see, this mechanical domain can easily dismiss the essential nature of things precisely because this essential nature is available spread out in space all around us. It is somewhat more difficult for the entire field of physics to progress in the way that the field of mechanics has progressed. This is the reason for all of this talk of refusing to acknowledge the essential nature of things. When physicists choose to think in purely mechanical terms, they can easily refuse to understand beings. There is no being behind the formulas that are used today to express mechanics and mathematical terms. Beings begin only when we no longer simply apply these formulas, but delve into the essential nature of mathematics itself. I hope this addresses the question of how to extend the field of mathematics to cover imponderables. Questions and Answers Dornach, October 15, 1920 A question about Copernicus's Third Law. It is impossible to speak about Copernicus's Third Law in such a short time, so let me simply comment on its history. If you look at Copernicus's basic work, which severely shook the old Ptolemaic system and revolutionized our view of the heavenly bodies, you will find that it encompasses three laws. The first of these three laws speaks about Earth's annual movement around the Sun in an eccentric circle, the second about the Earth's rotation around its axis, and the third about the Earth's movement around the Sun in relationship to the seasons and precession. As astronomy progressed, it failed to consider this third Copernican law in its entirety. In fact, Copernicus's successors effectively eliminated it. That is all I can say about this law without doing extensive drawings, which would keep us here until midnight. On the basis of the phenomena available to him, Copernicus first calculated the daily changes caused by the Earth's circular movement around the Sun disregarding the seasonal, yearly, and longer-term changes encompassed by his third law. 
He then concluded that if we consider the daily changes, and those dependent on the Earth's circular movement around the Sun in the Earth's position with regard to the other heavenly bodies, the result is a view of the Earth revolving around the Sun. This view is opposed by other phenomena, such as the seasons and precession, which actually nullify the assumption that the Earth revolves around the Sun. For the sake of being able to quantify and calculate the interactions between the Earth and the other heavenly bodies, we make it easy for ourselves and disregard any changes that can be observed only over a year or over centuries, because these changes complicate the daily changes that depend on the Earth's circular movement around the Sun. Calculating the daily changes on the basis of the assumptions expressed by Copernicus in his first and second law results in the Earth's yearly revolution around the Sun. As Copernicus himself said, if we include the third law in our calculations, it counteracts the factor contained in the first law, which we calculated into the daily movement and which yields the Earth's yearly movement, and almost eliminates any such yearly movement. In any case, the third Copernican law has been disregarded. People preferred the easy assumption that the Earth rotates around its axis in 24 hours, progressing all the while so as to move around the Sun in the course of one year. This solution was simple as long as we clung dogmatically to the Copernican assumption that the Sun does not move at all. We were forced to abandon this assumption a long time ago, however, and the third Copernican law had to be reinstated. I can summarize this subject only briefly. As I said, a detailed mathematical and geometric explanation would take hours. But if we take the third Copernican law seriously, it does not result in movement of the earth around the sun. The sun moves. It would outrun the earth if the earth simply revolved around the sun. The earth cannot revolve around the sun because meanwhile the sun would move away from it. In reality the sun moves on and the earth and the other planets follow it. We have a line like the thread of a screw with the sun at one point and the earth at the other end. Our dual focus on the earth and sun and on their progressive screw-like movement creates the illusion that the earth is revolving around the sun. The interesting point in all this is that Copernicus was more advanced than we are today. We have simply omitted his third law from astronomy's post-Copernican development. Our astronomy has been developed without this third law, which states that other phenomena negate the yearly movements around the sun that we calculate for the earth. To do full justice to Copernicus, this law must be reintroduced. This subject does not attract much interest, because if we were to apply a true phenomenological approach to astronomy, we would have to realize first and foremost that, as Dr. Freyde already mentioned, we are dealing with extremely complicated movements, and that the ordinary geometrical constructions we use in attempting to describe these movements are suited only to descriptions of simple geometrical processes. Because the heavenly bodies do not obey such simple processes, 
disturbances always appear and we are forced to compensate by adding more hypotheses. When we get beyond such hypotheses, astronomy will look completely different. This will happen only when we progress to a form of natural science that truly includes the human being and observes phenomena within the human being. Taking these phenomena into account will allow us to develop a view of the events and processes of cosmic space. As Dr. Unger also mentioned, the human being actually has been ousted from today's science, which disregards the human element. Ideas such as the theory of relativity, which certainly do not correspond to reality, are able to take hold only because modern science is so utterly estranged from reality that it deals with everything outside human beings, but nothing that happens inside them. To think in ways that correspond to reality is a skill that humanity will have to relearn. If you have a stone lying here, reference to a drawing that has not been preserved, you will see it as leading an independent existence, at least to a certain extent. It all depends on your presuppositions. We can say that when we consider what we see within the boundaries of the stone, we develop a certain view of the stone. But now assume that instead of a stone we are considering a rose that I have picked. It is not possible to ascribe reality to the rose in the same way that we ascribed reality to the stone within its boundaries, because a plucked rose cannot exist in isolation. It must develop in connection with something else. We are forced to say that while the stone within its described limits possesses a certain real existence, the rose does not, because it can exist only in association with its root stock. If I separate it from its roots, the prerequisites for its existence are no longer present, and it cannot persist. We must relearn the skill of submerging our thinking in things and taking the things themselves into account. Only when we have acquired this skill will we have a healthy form of astronomy, for example, as a matter of course. We will be spared the terrible abstraction of such ideas as the theory of relativity. Essentially, the theory of relativity is based on ideas that are not true realities. The ordinary formula S equals V times T, parenthesis distance, equals speed multiplied by time, close parenthesis, is quite illuminating. When I am describing a reality, I can write only this, V equals S over T. Speed multiplied equals distance divided by time. When we grasp a reality by means of abstraction, I can calculate everything that is in a real object. Because it is possible to grasp many different things on an abstract level, we can perform many different calculations while remaining within the abstract. We must not believe, however, that these abstractions are realities. In the inorganic world, only speeds are realities and both time and space are mere abstractions. Thus, when we begin to perform calculations involving time and space, we enter the domain of unreality.
and once we begin thinking in unreal terms, we can no longer return to reality. These issues, therefore, are related to very significant shortcomings of our times. In recent times, humankind has disregarded the spirit completely while attempting to understand nature, and our souls have moved toward abstractions. In one sense, dealing with abstractions is extremely comfortable because we do not need to learn to submerse ourselves in objects and events. It is easier to think in terms of space and time than to immerse ourselves in qualitative aspects or to realize that whatever we can think of as real in connection with something else can therefore be thought about in real terms. Editor's note, not abstractly. You need not believe what I am about to say, but it is true nonetheless. It is a torture for a person who has cultivated a capacity for thinking and a desire to understand reality to read Einstein's theory of relativity. Because even though all the ideas Einstein presents are mathematically very consistent, they are literally unthinkable for someone with any sense of reality. It is impossible to pursue such thoughts to their conclusion. What does it mean and what kind of sense does it make when Einstein presents a whole complex of thoughts about someone who is sealed up in a box and journeys through space at high speed and returns to find a new generation of people in totally different circumstances? When we think about such a situation, of course we are thinking only in terms of space and time and disregarding the outer bodily nature of the person or object which would be destroyed while undergoing the experiment. Although this objection may seem naive to fanatical thinkers on the subject of relativity, it inevitably comes into consideration with regard to reality. Anyone who has a sense for reality cannot see such thoughts through to the end. Suppose that we are traveling in a car, for example, and have a flat tire. Let's assume that it makes no difference whether I think that the car, with me in it, is speeding over the ground or that the car is standing still while the ground moves out from under me. If in fact it makes no difference, why should the ground suddenly go on strike because of a minor breakdown that concerns only the car? If it makes no difference how we conceive of this situation, the outcome should not be affected by the outer change. As I said before, although such objections are terribly naive, as far as relativity theorists are concerned, they do reflect current realities. Anyone whose thinking is grounded in reality rather than in abstraction, even an abstraction that can sustain consistent thoughts, is forced to point out such issues. Fundamentally, therefore, we are living with a theoretical form of astronomy. A classic example is our disregard of the third Copernican law. We push it aside because it is uncomfortable. When we study it, we learn to feel uncomfortable about our customary calculations. What do we do? We apply the second Copernican law, but our calculations do not come out even, and noon falls in the wrong place. So we introduce the daily corrections, known as Bessel's corrections. If we realize their full implications, however, we see the need to take the third Copernican law into account. That is, we begin to deal with realities. The point here is to acknowledge the principles behind such issues 
the way we presently deal with such principles, permits us to go astray in many different directions. Mr. Steffen did an excellent job of presenting three such tortuous paths in a specific field of knowledge. Such misleading paths are easy to encounter today, and they influence real life. We have trained ourselves to think in ways derived from a mathematics that lacks reality, and this type of thinking gradually has become almost a touchstone of genius. In fact, a sense of reality is sometimes much more helpful than genius, because if you have a sense of reality, you must abide by the realities of the situation. You must immerse yourself in objects and events and live with them. If you have no sense of reality, you can impose all sorts of abstractions onto space and time in the most ingenious way, simply by manipulating mathematical formulas and methods. You can rise to truly terrible levels of abstraction. These abstractions sometimes can be very seductive. I am thinking of modern set theory, which has been used as the basis for explaining infinity. Set theory dissolves number, the very principle of mathematics, because it no longer sees a number as an ordinary number, but merely compares one arbitrary set with another, classifying individual entities with no regard to their qualities and essence. Set theory makes it possible to develop certain theories of infinity, but swimming in abstractions all the while. In concrete reality, it is impossible to perform such operations. It is important to note that we gradually have become accustomed to disregarding the need to immerse ourselves in reality. In this connection, spiritual science really needs to set the record straight. I am now going to present two opposites. This appears to have nothing to do with theory, but in truth it has a great deal to do with theory, because all of these matters deal with much more than a theory, which can be corrected if our thinking about it is sound. The real issue is the need to develop sound thinking, thinking that is not merely logical, because logic also applies to mathematics. We can incorporate logic into mathematics, and the result is a completely coherent structure that nonetheless need not apply to reality at all. By now we have reached the point of being able to show how things look to an undisciplined way of thinking that lacks any true sense of reality. Here you have on the one hand a book that attempts to summarize everything that modern science has to offer. Thousands and thousands of copies, seventy or eighty thousand, I believe, of this famous book have already been sold. It is Oswald Spengler's book titled The Decline of the West. As you know, this means that four or five times that number of people have read the book. So we know what a tremendous influence it has had on modern thought, simply because it emerged from modern thought in a certain sense. The author of this book had the courage to formulate the ultimate consequences of modern thinking. In this book, Spengler looks at everything that astronomy, history, the natural sciences, and art have to offer, and we are forced to admit that he has amassed a huge body of evidence. Because Spengler really thinks in this way, he has the courage to draw the ultimate conclusions from the thinking of truly modern astronomers, botanists, art historians, and so on. 
As clearly as we can prove the second law of thermodynamics, for example, Spengler's book also proves that in the beginning of the third millennium, Western civilization will have degenerated into complete barbarity. We must admit that this book not only has shown us the decline of modern civilization, but also has proved a future event as clearly as any scientific statement can be proved today. In terms of the methods of modern science, Spengler's proof of the decline of the West is certainly as good as any astronomical proof or the like, and much better than any proof of the theory of relativity. His conclusions can be circumvented only by those who see factors that Spengler himself does not see, namely by those who will provide completely new impulses for humanity from now on, impulses that must be born out of the inmost core of the human being and that are invisible to any science based solely on contemporary thought. But what is Spengler's thinking like? Unlike the relativity theorists, Oswald Spengler thinks in categories that correspond to reality. Not everything he thinks fits together, however. The concepts he develops about astronomy, biology, art history, architecture, sculpture, and so on do not always mesh. They form a structure that I would like to compare to crystals that have grown together. They are all confused and they destroy each other. If we maintain a sense of reality while reading Spengler's book, we find that his concepts are very full, reference to a drawing that has not been preserved. Oswald Spengler certainly knows how to think and develop concepts, but his concepts destroy each other. They blow each other up and cut each other apart. Nothing remains whole because one concept always negates another. We see terrible, destructive actions when we apply a sense of reality to the development of Spengler's ideas. Spengler represents one pole in modern thought, the pole that constructs a unity out of concepts drawn from all different fields. The philosophers associated with this trend neatly defined everything on such an abstract level that all of the concepts they derive from individual sciences can be gathered together and united into a system of sorts in an attempt to come to a point. They fail to come to a point, however, but simply splinter and obliterate each other. Spengler is a much better philosopher of modern science than many other philosophers whose concepts do not destroy each other because their formulators lack the courage to define them precisely enough. In their philosophies of science, these other philosophers always confusing tiger claws with cat paws, as it were, resulting in comical constructs that are said to be the philosophical consequences of individual scientific investigations. If we consider these philosophers seriously, we see that Spengler is experienced in all the sciences and knowledgeable about anything scientific that can result from the customs of philosophy. The other pole is represented by a philosopher who is also popular, though not revered to the extent that Spengler is, namely Count Hermann Kaiserling. Kaiserling differs from Oswald Spengler in that none of his concepts have any content. While Spengler's concepts are meaty, Kaiserling's are empty. They never contradict each other because they are basically only empty husks of words. Kaiserling's only thought 
which is also an empty husk, is that the spirit must unite with the soul. Count Kaiserling attacks anthroposophy vehemently. In the periodical titled Zukunft, for example, he accused me of splitting the human being into various members, ether body, sentient bodies, sentient soul, and so on, while in fact the human being is a unity and functions as such. The thought that the spirit must unite with the soul seems fiendishly clever, but in fact it is no more clever than saying that a suit is a unity and should not be broken down into component parts such as a vest, a pair of pants, boots, and so on. It's all a unity, so I should not have the tailor make the jacket and pants separately and then go to the cobbler for boots to match. Of course, all of these things form a unity on the human being who is wearing them. But it makes no sense to say that jacket and pants, and probably the boots as well, should be stitched together into a single article of clothing, even if Count Kaiserling, in his abstract idealism, insists that they are a unity. This is the opposite pole. We have on the one hand Spengler with his concepts that destroy each other, and on the other hand we have Kaiserling with his totally empty concepts. For anyone who has any sense of reality, it is a torment to reach Spengler and to see all his concepts colliding with and crushing each other and forcing their way into each other. You really are compelled to experience all this, especially if you have any artistic sensibility. Spengler's book is a totally inartistic construct. But when you read Kaiserling's book, you stop and gasp for breath after one page, because his concepts have no air in them. We want to form a thought, but there is nothing there, which makes it very easy for people to understand these concepts and feel comfortable with them. This is especially true if this impotent non-thinker also tells them that while there may be some truth to the facts that spiritual science confirms, he himself cannot corroborate them and therefore will not assume that they are true, since he is not one of those people who has intuitions, and so on, and so forth. Of course, people lap up this kind of talk, especially if they themselves cannot supply the necessary proof. Especially today such people much prefer a writer who admits to being unable to confirm the facts to one they have to struggle to keep up with. Kaiserling's scribblings, on art in particular, are enough to make your hair stand on end, but they are very popular. That is all I have to say on this subject. By now you may have developed a sense for what it means when Goethe says, quote, consider the what, but consider how more seriously. Close quote. You can consider the what when you reach Spengler, because he has a lot of what to offer. But Goethe knew that a worldview depends on how we see the whole in the coordination, organization, and inherent harmony of ideas. That is why we can say, referring to Spengler, consider the what. Spengler does consider the what as it should be considered, but he fails to consider the how at all. Above all else, Goethe challenges us to consider how ideas are arranged. With regard to Kaiserling, we might say that he appears to possess the how. In fact, his work is teeming with how, but there is no what, no content. The end of section 
11.